Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Pigliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gelef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, our topic today is celebrities and the damage they can do. Ooh. We're going to talk about the phenomenon of celebrities using the spotlight to pontificate about things they don't have expertise in, and in many cases on which they don't have their facts straight. So pontificating some, that's one of my favorite activities. I, I borrowed that word from you. <laughs> ah, thank you. It's, it's, yes, it's usually it's the Pope that does it. You know, that's where the word comes from. Oh, that's uh, the right. The Pope is the Pontifex Maximus, the ma- the, 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 the one top. who maximally yeah, pontificates. Exactly. The maximum <laughs> pontificator. <laughs> Which right. adds that extra for some of irony when you talk about Jenny McCarthy pontificating. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> so. Some of the standard examples of the the phenomenon we're referring to here come from entertainment. So, yeah, Jenny McCarthy talking about vaccines causing autism or Bill Maher slamming Western medicine. But we're also going to try to touch on people who actually are experts in one technical field uh, who give their opinion about topics outside of their area of expertise. So uh, I'll, I'll start out. Um, Massimo, you asked a bunch of questions in the teaser for this episode around this general topic. So to frame this discussion, I organized them a little bit. I think they fall into three categories. First, why do celebrities talk about things they don't have expertise in? Second, why are they given a platform to speak about these issues? And third, finally, why do people listen to them and, and why are they influenced by them? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Probably we should start with a little bit of uh, um, a couple of examples, mm-hmm. because uh, as you were saying, under the, there are different categories of, of this phenomenon. So we go, for instance, from somebody at one extreme. Uh, uh, let, let me put these two people in the same sentence. Jenny McCartney and Stephen Hawking. Stephen uh, Hawking, eh? Yes. So, uh, because Is that I think been the first time they've been in the same sentence together? Possibly. Um, th- so, so I think that they're good... Um, um, book hands to this continuum that we're going to be talking about today. Okay. Um, obviously, Jenny McCarthy is famous uh, for her anti-vaccination uh, campaign. So she's convinced because she has an autistic child who became autistic after being vaccinated. Um, she's convinced that um, modern medical science is wrong and she, she's correct. There's a connection. There's a causal connection between uh, uh, vaccination and, vac- and, um, and autism. Now, uh, as Probably most of our listeners know there is, in fact, no evidence at all for this connection. The The only paper that um, presented allegedly any evidence of this sort was published about a decade ago, was was retracted by the journal. Uh, the, the paper was based on fraudulent data. Uh, there has been plenty of research that has been done since um, that, in fact, has found no link whatsoever. Uh, so as far as medical science is concerned, there is no link, or at least there is absolutely no evidence of link, even though people have you know, looked at it um, very hard. Nonetheless, uh, we have a situation where about 40% of Americans at this point um, are seriously considering not vaccinating their children, which, of course, could potentially be resulting into into a a, um, healthcare catastrophe over the next several years. Now, Jenny McCartney is a clear clear example of somebody who literally doesn't know what what she's talking about. She has absolutely no technical background in medical research, in biology, or anything like that. Uh, she is speaking out of a single example. She's committing one of the most elementary logical fallacies, the post hoc ergo propter hoc uh, fallacy, you know, after this, therefore, because of, of mm-hmm. that. Um, 
So this seems to be, to me, that, that that is a clear case where any sensible person will simply look at her claims and say, okay, the woman is a cuckoo and we just need to ignore, ignore her. Of course, as you know, as you pointed out, people don't ignore her. In fact, the, plenty of people are, are, are more than, than, uh, than happy to follow her lead, uh, whatever it may, it may go. Now, at the opposite end of, the, of that spectrum is somebody who's like Stephen Hawking, who I think we mentioned in the past, um, his latest book, um, which of course is about cosmology, starts out, I think just the, the second sentence or the second paragraph, with a complete out-of-hand dismissal of the entire field of philosophy on the ground that uh, it hasn't made any, any um, uh, contribution to science over the last several decades. Now, here is somebody who, again, does not actually have any technical expertise in the field, and Stephen Hawking is a physicist, he's not a philosopher, um, and who, because of his position as a celebrity of sorts, I mean, not the same kind of celebrity that Jenny McCarty is, but certainly a celebrity of sorts, you know, the, the guy who sells a lot of books, he has also a reputation, well-deserved reputation as a scientist, um, makes a comment that is demonstrably, um, at the very least, questionable. You can't say that, that that comment is false in the same sense in which Mac- Jenny McCarty's co- comment is false, right? Because it's a matter of opinion, first of all, whether philosophy or any other field is relevant or interesting. That's a matter of opinion. But um, by the fact that Hawking said, I don't think philosophy has anything to contribute anymore because it has been useless to science, that comment makes very clear that he's making uh, a category mistake. In what uh, sense? In the sense that philosophy, the point of philosophy is not to solve scientific questions. So that would be like saying we should do away with... Um, literary criticism or painting or, or music because it hasn't made any contribution to science. Well, if, you were, if anybody were to make that kind of comment, it would be laughed out of court for reasons similar to the ones that I think Stephen Hawking should be laughed out of court in that case. Now, mm-hmm. that said, however, it is at the opposite extreme because, as I said, this is a situation, first of all, it's much more esoteric. We're talking about the relationship between science and philosophy. It's debatable. It's not based on, on matters of fact. Uh, and yet, I think that those are on the same; those two examples are on the same continuum because we are, in both cases, talking about somebody who is clearly making offhand comments um, about things that he or she does not know uh, pretty much anything about. Hmm. I, okay, I don't want to get too bogged down in the Stephen Hawking example too early on. Oh, um, but <laughs> but I, so I I read that example in the teaser that you wrote, and I I saw the quote you were referring to in Stephen Hawking's latest book. And I, I just, I can't get behind the idea that he's making a category error. I mean, of course, with some, with respect to some branches of philosophy, to most branches of philosophy, it would not, the, the, their point is not to solve scientific questions. But I thought it was clear from context that Hawking was talking about the kinds of philosophy that are trying to answer questions about the fundamental nature of the universe, which, I mean, okay, so I, I went to the, uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy page on metaphysics, and pretty much verbatim, the questions discussed there are, Does space extend infinitely in every direction? Is space a substance or a mere system of relations between things? Are the past and future as real in the same sense as that in which the present is real? Why does space have three dimensions and not four or seven? And these are are all questions about the nature of the universe, and they're questions which are central to a lot of physicists' work. So it doesn't seem like a category error to me for Stephen Hawking to say that, that philosophers are this kind of philosophy is trying to answer questions about the nature of the universe and hasn't really contributed much recently. Right. But first of all, um, he was not talking about metaphysics specifically. He was talking about philosophy no, he just in said general. philosophy, but then right. the well, can accuse a, him of is not using a specific enough word. Uh, no, that's like making a, 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 the, the mistake of mistaking biology with science. 
it's it's a big mistake, and it's a mistake that an intellectual that the caliber of, of Alkin shouldn't be making, particularly when writing a book about uh, for the general public that has in fact nothing to do with philosophy. That's my first objection. The second objection is actually, uh, if you read um, recent literature in metaphysics, philosophers who do metaphysics do in fact take quite a bit from science. Uh, oh, they take from science. But yes. you're saying they don't give to science. Um, that is not true either, because there is a lot of metaphysics, for instance, of, of time travel that is the result of collaborations between mathematicians, physicists, theoretical physicists, and philosophers. Huh. Because the, the fact is, as you probably know, that there are interesting paradoxes that are logical paradoxes as far as time travel is concerned. Mm-hmm. That and a logical paradox is not going to be solved by physics. It's going to be informed by our understanding of, say, time which, of course, has to be the result of our understanding of physics. But whether time travel is physically possible or not, it presents separate categories of problems, such as logical problems, which I think are the perfect example of how science and philosophy work together. Uh, so no, I'm not going to be. I'm, I'm not going to be able to grant <laughs> Stephen right. Hawking much of a leeway in that. Okay, area. that's fine. I just wanted to register yes, an objection, but let's, let's move on and talk but, about. But but that's but your point is interesting because as you can just as, as you just demonstrated, we can have a reasonable discussion about how far off the mark Hawkins was. In my opinion, obviously, he was way off the mark. In your opinion, perhaps a little less. But we can have, in fact, a reasonable discussion, a reasonable disagreement about that. I don't think the two of us could have a reasonable disagreement about how far off Jenny McCarty is. Or, for instance, to pick one of our uh, producer's favorite example, Bill Meyer. Uh, now, Bill Meyer is an interesting one because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so he's a comedian, of course, as a sort of a background, uh, but he's become a social commentator, um, just like many other comedians have done in their mm-hmm. career. And in fact, I think that's a perfectly fine role because if you think about it, being a comedian um, means that you apply uh, your sense of humor to situations that often are, in fact, um, to do with politics or social issues and so on and so forth. So becoming a, um, a commentator, social commentator, uh, in the sort of light sense of the term, I think is perfectly fine, right? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I happen to actually agree with a lot of Bill Meyer's political opinions. Sometimes I disagree. But even if you agree or disagree with his political opinions, you can see that those are considered, usually considered opinions. You can have a reasonable disagreement along the lines of the ones that the two of us just had about Hawking. What you cannot possibly have a reasonable disagreement is when Bill Meyer goes off the deep end and um, rejects the, entire, the entirety of Western medicine and thinks that he's not going to get vaccinated against anything because he doesn't want other people, you know, he doesn't want, quote, the government to put um, extraneous substances in his, in his um, um, blood circulation. That is idiotic. And it, what baffles me is that a person that is otherwise very intelligent by any reasonable definition of intelligent can, in fact, make that sort of completely um, against the fact uh, uh, sort of statement. That's what I think it's it's the most baffling part of these of these question. Sure. Well, that's that's not particular to celebrities. That's no. That baffling <laughs> question applies to humanity in general. Uh, it does. In the case of celebrities, of course, it comes with more responsibility because they have more access to the public. Sure. I, I do think we should probably separate out the question of whether a celebrity has background in has has knowledge about a subject from whether we feel okay with them speaking about it in the public because there are definitely celebrities that are not experts in in whatever cause they've taken up, but we're fine with it because they happen to get it right. Like the Correct. celebrities <clears throat> promoting, you know, the fight against global warming. Um, right. I right. think Leonardo DiCaprio has set up a foundation for that and he's, you know, right. hosted a couple documentaries about it and that sort of thing. And I, I, he's no expert in client, climate right. science any more than Bill Maher is an expert in medicine. But that's correct. That's, you know, that's and, fine. And there are uh, plenty of celebrities who are involved in social issues, for instance, you know, uh, uh, or political issues even. Uh, George Clooney has done a lot of work um, in Sudan and Chad in that area of, of Africa. And he's done good work. But in fact, in that particular case, I happen to, to have um, 
semi-direct knowledge of, of that kind of work because I know people that have worked with him. And he has done the intelligent thing. That is, he picked a cause uh, because he wanted to do some good, and then he went to the experts. In particular, he went to the, uh, an organization called the International Rescue Committee, which mm-hmm. has a large presence. It's a humanitarian organization, disaster relief organization that has a huge presence in, in, uh, in Sudan that has operated there for, for many years. And he went, Clooney went to them mm-hmm. uh, to say, okay, here I have money and I have access. What should I do? <laughs> that is the intelligent thing to do. So definitely this, this um, discussion should not be taken as a sort of across-the-board criticism of the idea of a celebrity, for one thing, and certainly not even of the idea that celebrities uh, you know, shouldn't uh, talk about, the, uh, about whatever issue they feel like talking about. The question is, how should, we, should they do it? And when they do it wrongly, why do people pay attention? Right. So let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about why they're being given this platform in the first place. Because, sure, sometimes celebrities will just you know, tweet to their followers whatever their opinion is on something. So that's not, they're not being approached there. But oftentimes they're, you know, they're asked questions by journalists or they're invited on a talk show and asked questions about subjects they don't know anything about. So, I mean, I know that people will often say they don't understand why celebrities are asked for their opinion on on topics they have no background in. I I would say the answer is largely simple, that they're asked for their opinion for the same reason that people ask their friends for their opinion on things. That like if you're interested in someone, if you like them, if you if you're familiar with them and you find them entertaining, you're often interested in their opinions even if you know they're not an expert. So then I guess the question is really why are their opinions influential as opposed to why are right. people interested in hearing their opinions? Right. Now, that's a good point. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, 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 the whole idea of um, having a celebrity interviewed on, especially in these uh, formats that are becoming more and more popular where the celebrity goes to a show and he or she sits down on a chair or a couch or something. So the whole em- environment looks like a chat among friends, right? right. And so you're, the idea is, of course, that the audience is brought into the same chat and we're all friends and we all listen to each other. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think that is what's going on there. But of course, I assume that um, it's not a rational thing to do if we were having a chat uh, among friends and somebody said to me, by the way, you shouldn't be vaccinating your daughter. And I asked him, well, do you have any background in medicine? And he says, absolutely not. But I know the science better than the doctors. I would say, well, sorry, but I'm, you know, we're friends, but we're going to, I'm going to stay away from that kind of easy, silly um, advice. So the question is, as you were saying, why is it that so many people not, why, why, it's not why celebrities are asked their opinions is why is it that so many people seem to take that opinion seriously, right. even though it's, pretty obvious that the person in question does not actually have the technical know-how uh, to provide a knowledgeable opinion. You know, everybody's entitled to an opinion, but it's, there's a difference between being entitled to opinion, an opinion and then following somebody's opinion just because uh, on, you know, on what grounds. That's the right, question. Right, right, right. Um, maybe now would be a good time to bring in a comment from one of our commenters named Graham, who actually questioned the notion that celebrities actually do influence people, or that, that the endorsement by a celebrity of an idea is, is convincing to people to believe that idea. So Graham says, I'm not sure how much celebrities really convince people to believe in anything. I think their main function in promoting ridiculous ideas is just increased exposure. For example, I doubt anyone thinks, even unconsciously, quote, Jenny McCarthy believes vaccines cause autism, so it's probably true. Celebrities just happen to be in the beneficial position of having media attention so they can talk about whatever they want. And there's a certain segment of the population that's receptive to the ideas. They're just increasing the overall number of people that get exposed to the idea, end quote. 
That's so, an interesting point, but yeah. I, I kind of disagree with that. Um, well, I, mean, I think it's an ahead. important distinction to make, um, at least just to keep in mind, because it's true that even if people weren't actually influenced by a celebrity endorsement of an idea, you'd still see support for that idea go up after a celebrity endorsement, mm-hmm. merely from the fact that people were introduced to the idea. So the question of interest is whether support for the idea goes up more because the celebrity endorsed it as compared to say if the same number of viewers saw a non-celebrity endorse the idea i don't know if that's possible to get at experimentally but yeah that's a good question for social scientists and i don't know what uh, what data if any are out there about this but i have this this um perhaps pessimistic impression that if a celebrity endorses a reasonable notion that notion isn't going to carry as much as with the, with the public. Oh, so you think it's not just unrelated, it's actually negatively related That's right. to That's reasonableness. Right. And here's that why. is pessimistic. It is pessimistic, isn't it? But uh, here's why. I think that the, something along the lines of what our comment, uh, commenter said is correct. That mm-hmm. is, clearly, somebody has a platform, whatever that person says, is bound to have a, a broader audience than if your neighbor said it. Um, but I also think that there is a... Um, particular tendency, both by celebrities themselves, um, of course not everyone, but by, by, by a, large, a good enough, not large enough number, and especially on the part of the public, um, to present and therefore and to buy in, in the case of the public, op- 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 notions that are contrary to whatever the establishment is supposed to be, it's, it's perceived mm-hmm. to be, in this case, the scientific establishment. Right? So your doctor says that you should vaccinate it, and here comes this, this person, this famous person who says, no, forget your doctor, you know, he's, he's in the uh, pockets of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, therefore you shouldn't believe it. And people seem to relish that sort of conspiracy-based rejection of authority, even mm-hmm. though, of course, they don't seem to realize that um, they are, in fact, making an argument for, author- for of authority of a different kind. They're just believing a, a, a non-technically grounded celebrity as opposed to their doctor. But it's still an argument from authority. Right. And I think that's related to the question of why are celebrities given this platform when they are? Because ideas that are, as you were saying, contrary to sort of the common wisdom, the established wisdom, are just more interesting. And so the media is much more likely to promote those and to... Um, splash those onto the headlines of their, their magazines right. and their talk shows. That's right, which, which goes back to the idea that um, this is the kind of the classical situation where everybody's a culprit. The celebrities themselves, of course, should be much more careful about what they say and, 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 and how. Uh, the public should be a little more um, grand and in critical thinking. Um, there goes an optimistic statement. And, uh, but, but it's also the media. Uh, right, so the media should be ideally the media is supposed to be the filter between the nonsense and 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 or the authorities on the one hand and the public, and on the other hand, more and more uh, larger segment of the media don't play that role. they play in fact in some sense the opposite role they, they go and fishing for the most absurd notion and they present it just because it is absurd, just because it is unusual, just because it is sensationalistic sure um, i I want to go back to Graham's point that people aren't actually thinking even unconsciously that Jenny McCarthy believes this, so it must must be true. Um, I think there is actually some evidence against that idea. Or uh, in other words, there's psychological research that suggests that 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 sort of thing does happen, that that people are influenced unconsciously, even if they would explicitly say that this person isn't an expert and so I shouldn't believe them. So there's this well-known cognitive bias called the halo effect, 
in which the perception of one trait of a person or of a thing is influenced by your perception of a totally different trait of theirs. So the classic example is that we judge attractive people to be more intelligent, which uh, this experimental result has been confirmed again and again. I always thought you were very bright. Uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All along, just a halo. Thanks. Right. appreciate that. <laughs> um, anyway. <Sorry. laughs> it's not necessary. Okay. No, so. but it was funny. <laughs> uh, so anyway, there, there's a bunch of experiments that researchers have done where they show people photos of strangers and, and the subjects judge the, mo- uh, the more attractive people as being more skilled, more intelligent, more friendly, and a bunch of other positive traits. So it shouldn't be surprising that celebrities who are far more attractive and glamorous than your typical person get a big kickback from the halo effect when they're talking about something even completely unrelated to their career. Yeah, now that makes sense. That does remind me of, of a, uh, another effect um, that uh, I often mention to my students in, in sort of critical thinking classes, which is, I refer to it as the Nobel syndrome. Uh-huh. And the Nobel syndrome is, I, I've noticed many, many times over, over many years that as soon as somebody wins the Nobel Prize, uh, that person suddenly becomes an expert on almost anything. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, Obviously, if somebody wins a Nobel Prize, by all reasonable standards, that person is both accomplished and very, very intelligent. So I don't think there is an issue here, again, of so Jenny McCarty kind of type of, of, of situation. But nonetheless, if you win the Nobel Prize in, say, you know, particle physics, it seems to me silly um, out of anybody to ask you your opinion about, I don't know, world peace or, or politics or economics or, or anything, in fact, outside of quantum mechanics or whatever it is that you wanted the Nobel Prize in. Yep. And oh, yet sorry. that happens actually a lot of the times. And in fact, mm-hmm. a lot of Nobel winners go around giving sort of general lectures about things that are really not necessarily much to do with uh, the specific research or topic for which they were awarded the Nobel. I mean, the Nobel, most of the times, especially in the sciences, certainly in the sciences, is a very specific kind of reward. It, it's for a very specific piece of work that usually has very little sort of general implications outside of the very uh, of the narrow field in which the Nobel is awarded. That's different, of course, in the case of Nobel for non-scientific fields uh, to some extent, uh, although even there there is, there is a problem. But the, the, particularly in the case of, of um, science-based Nobel, it's, just, it's, it's very bizarre. You, you, you listen to these people who are obviously intelligent, obviously articulate, talking about things of which they probably know nothing about. You know, it just occurred to me that this people's tendency, you know, the Nobel effect that you're describing is probably related to people's sense that there is this, this underlying quantity that's that's just intelligence it's not that there are different kinds of intelligence it's just that there's this uh, there's a name for it that social science researchers use general intelligence yeah general General intelligence intelligence. Mm -hmm. and uh and that that other kinds of intelligence are just manifestations of this um no i think that's a good point actually that is a good point first of all as you know there there is um mounting evidence now in the social sciences and uh, cognitive sciences that in fact uh, there are several different types of intelligences. Of course, there is disagreement about how to measure them. There is disagreement about how many types that uh, there actually are and how distinct they are. I'm not so sure that I would call some of these types of intelligences intelligences. For instance, there you know there's talk of emotional intelligence. Um, yeah. Okay. So the right. language gets a little figurative. Yes. At exactly. <laughs> but I'm not even sure what it would mean to have an underlying single intelligence. Like I don't even know how you could test for that. You can test people on different tasks, but I guess you could test to see if they're all correlated. Right, but. and that is exactly how the idea came about to begin with. Uh, when people were started uh, administering intelligent uh, IQ tests, mm-hmm. intelligent quotient tests, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a fascinating history, which, by the way, it's recounted very well in, uh, in the classic book by Stephen Jay Gould, uh, The Mismeasure of Men. Mm-hmm. And the origin of that 
test is interesting. It was introduced by Alfred Benet, a French researcher whose, ironically, whose objective was actually to identify uh, young children who were lagging behind at school so that they could be helped. Right. And of course, immediately, it was actually socially progressive. Right. It was socially progressive. Attempt, as soon as it yeah. crossed the Atlantic and came to the United States, it was used exactly the other way around to, as, to discriminate against people who were behind for whatever reason. Now, from there, the, 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 the uh, jump was very quick to assume that somehow IQ had a genetic basis, even though um, the evidence about that is very controversial, to say the least. Um, and then from there on, of course, people started to figure out whether they, you know, they, 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 there was a variety of tests by which you can measure allegedly IQ. And so there were different schools about you should measure this way or that way or, and so on. So people came up with this idea that perhaps these tests are correlated and the correlation is represented by these underlying factor, the G factor you were talking about earlier. Now, the way they, they went about it is they used something called factor analysis. Mm-hmm. which is a, a multivariate statistical technique, which was invented for the purpose. Mm-hmm. It was invented precisely for this for these, um, um, question of when you have a bunch of different variables that, uh, that may or may not may measure an underlying uh, similar, similar variable, um, can you establish that they do or they don't? Now, the interesting thing was, of course, that if you measure um, people on, on a variety of IQ uh, um, scales, and then you do a factor analysis. It turns out that you can, in fact, extract statistically a common factor. But the I problem think that's is that's just an artifact of the statistical method, though. I don't think that that we can take that as representing some real I, feature of your brain. I agree, but it's actually, I think, an artifact of the tests, not the, of the statistics. Um, it, it, it's an artifact mm-hmm. of the tests in the sense that IQ tests tend to be very similar. They tend to measure whatever they measure. They tend to be constructed in a very similar way. So it is no surprise that if you administer a bunch of tests um, with, that have essentially rather minor variations among themselves, uh, people tend to score high. If people score high, they tend to score high on all of them. And if they score low, they score low on all of them. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that what you're measuring is an underlying native intelligence. Right, right, right. Um, let's bring this discussion back to the question of celebrities being asked for their opinions on things. Um, there's one other ph- uh, psychological phenomenon that I thought was relevant to the issue. So it's related to the halo effect. Um, but it's specifically about the social prestige of the person who's giving an opinion. So actually, even before looking at the psychological research, you, can, you could already have guessed that prestige is convincing above and beyond attractiveness, even though celebrities tend to be attractive. If you look at the popular marketing technique of paying celebrities to endorse products, right. that seems to work, at least based on the fact that companies keep doing it. Um, and in those cases, the audience actually knows explicitly that the celebrity is just being paid to endorse the product. Um, and they're still influenced to buy products from that company. So you could imagine that when the celebrity seems to genuinely believe in the viewpoint that he or she is promoting, that the influence would be even stronger. Um, and there was a cool study in PLOS One recently called Prestige Affects Cultural Learning in Chimpanzees, um, suggesting that this phenomenon is uh, not unique to our particular um, section of the of the primate map. Um, and so the researchers took a high-ranking chimpanzee and a low-ranking chimpanzee um, from the same troop of chimps. Um, chimps have a, a very uh, very rigid, highly structured social structure, as I'm sure you know. Um, so the, the researchers trained each of the two chimps to do a trick um, to collect pl- plastic tokens that are lying around and to put them in a box in exchange for a treat. Um, the trick was the same, but the high-ranking chimps, chimps' box was polka-dotted and the low-ranking chimps' box was striped. So then the researchers returned the chimps to the troop and they set up these boxes 
um, and they observed what happened. So the other chimps quickly learned to copy the trick, but they overwhelmingly preferred to put their tokens in the polka dotted box, which is the one that the right. high-ranking chimp was putting ch- tokens in, even though the reward that they got was the same no matter which box they put the tokens in. Um, the polka dotted box ended up with 70% of the tokens, um, and then the researchers repeated this experiment in another troop, and the figure was even higher. It was the, the high-ranking chimps box got 90% of the tokens. So, so the takeaway here is that we copy each other, but we're much more likely to copy prestigious members of our troops than lowly ones, um, which does make sense evolutionarily, right? Because the prestigious yeah. primates in the troop are more likely to be the ones who are bigger or stronger or more powerful, or, or they're, they're the ones doing something right. Like, they're the ones with the good tracking skills or fighting skills or something. So it, it would make sense to copy them. And with modern-day celebrities, if they're the highest prestige people in our society, then I think it's quite plausible that maybe we just aren't making a distinction based on what their prestige is for and whether it's relevant to the specific issue at hand. No, you're, you're right. It does make sense. Now, we also need to remember um, that there is a... Um, cultural component there uh, because as you just mentioned in our society and uh, when right. you were giving the example of of the of the chimps which i think it's it is very appropriate in in this discussion uh for some reason i was remember reminded of a one of the an observation that i made when i was very young um and i was just beginning to um look into advertisements by american companies so mm-hmm. at the time i was living in italy and i was into um astronomy amateur astronomy and so i was uh shopping for a telescope and it turns out that I was comparing advertisements for telescopes uh, that were published in an Italian magazine, an Italian magazine about astronomy, and then in Sky and Telescope, which is, of course, the premier magazine of astronomy, uh, parameter astronomers in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I still remember this was, you know, 30 plus years ago. Um, I still remember very clearly w- w- with my friends, we were making this, this obvious observation, obvious comment that if you looked at the Italian magazine, despite the reputation of Italians, when it comes to advertisements and flashing um, uh, pictures on, on the covers of magazines. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I'm sure you don't. Uh, the Italian magazine had a telescope, right? Mm-hmm. Just a telescope. Of course, it was in a very good you know, light and color and all that sort of stuff. But there were technical specifications, and it was just a telescope. Did you the American at the, magazine have girls in short shorts? They absolutely did. The no, <laughs> absolutely you're kidding. Did. I was no, kidding. No, absolutely. Oh my God. They did. They had these beautiful young women just, you know, lusciously uh, uh, draped over the telescope. <laughs> I was kidding. And, and I thought, what is, what is going on here? Why would I buy a telescope? Because there's a young, attractive woman. And now, of course, having lived in the United States for more than 20 years, I know that that's the way it works. What? But it was a very um, strange observation. So, so we need also to take into account these, kind of, these, these, these issues of the cultural differences that, uh, you know, celebrity, even celebrity culture might work differently in different countries. Um, and, and in this particular case that I just brought up, the, uh, the example is, even, is of, a, of a comparison between two Western countries. But I'm sure the differences are even more so if we were to compare societies that are more, more uh, widely divergent from a cultural perspective. But, but the sure, chimpanzee yeah. example is, is very interesting <laughs> as well because that tells you how deep the root actually of these kind of psychological uh, behaviors is. Right, right. And I think the, another important thing to keep in mind about these effects, the halo effect and this, I don't know, prestige effect. I don't know. That's what I, I've been calling it. I don't know if that's the official name. Um, but... But the important thing to keep in mind about them is that they they work implicitly rather than explicitly. So people may not even be aware that they're being influenced by those factors. Right. So I, I saw a poll recently from CBS that kind of made me roll my eyes. Um, they asked people, whose voices do you trust on global warming? And the results were that people claimed to trust scientists a lot more than politicians and celebrities. Mm-hmm. And the article that was citing this poll concluded, quote, social research therefore suggests that star power may not help much when you want to persuade people to change their minds or behavior, end quote. 
That's not true. No, it's not People true will at say all. that celebrities don't influence them. Right. They may very well believe that celebrities don't influence them, but that does not mean that celebrities don't influence them. That's right. This no. is my problem with a lot of polling and, and focus group research across the board, that what people say about their behavior and motivations is just not a very accurate guide. Right. And, and a smart social scientist knows how to tell the difference. I mean, you can, you can actually test, you can do experiments to test yeah, whether, yeah, whether there is in fact a congruence between what people say they're going to do and, people, and, and what actually people do. But now the thing about science is interesting because um, uh, research does show that if you ask a question in the abstract, to the American people, uh, science as an abstract idea does have a, actually quite a, a lot of cachet in, in, in American culture. It does, cachet in it, the sense that people trust it or they people respect trust it. it. That's or, right. Respect it. It's okay. a respected institution. It's a respected type of, of activity. But then you ask them, you know, do you accept um, human-made climate change or do you accept evolution? And then all of a sudden they say, well, I respect science, but not that, not that part. And in fact, they, even, they will even tell you, oh, but that's not good science, as if this they actually the, knew. Uh, <laughs> this right? is the no true Scotsman fallacy. <laughs> that's exactly right. The, the no true scientist fallacy. No true scientist would make a claim like that. And this goes back decades and decades. I was just before coming here to um, tape this episode, I was reading a, a, a book on the, um, uh, on the ideological uses of biology over the last, uh, from, from, it's called From the Cart to Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interesting collection of essays. And the essay that I was reading uh, coming here is by Ronald Numbers, who is an historian, I believe, at the University of Wisconsin in Medicine. Uh, who has written a lot about creationism. And so he was, his chapter is about the, the history of creationism. And it's amazing how, as early as the 1910s and 20s, uh, creationists were saying that they absolutely respect science. It's evolution that it's not good, because clearly that's bad science. Right. And it, it wow. was, so the, the, the strategy goes back to at least a century in that specific, um, in that specific application. So. The more things change, <laughs> the more, more they the same. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think also sometimes the reason why celebrities are given a platform to talk about a field they're not experts in is that sometimes it's not actually obvious to a layperson, say to uh, the editor of, of a magazine or a TV show, which fields are actually relevant to which other fields. So, for example, if you had an empirical economist comment on research in psychology, that could be perfectly legitimate because the research methods are similar enough that the economist would be qualified to judge whether the psychologist had used good methodology and good statistical analysis and so on. Um, But a case in which there's not as much overlap as many people would think is between climate scientists and meteorologists. Right. So, as you know, meteorologists are constantly being asked to give their opinion on global warming, and actually a lot of them have said they think it's a scam. Um, but the science of meteorology is totally different from climate science. It deals with the short-term changes in, in weather. So they're looking at air pressure and water vapor and, and temperature interactions over the course of days, whereas the models that climate scientists use involve these very different specialized techniques and, and modeling software, and they're predicting these macro-scale global changes in climate over the long term. Um, but I, I think it's an understandable mistake for laypeople sure. to make. They think, oh, a meteorologist, they study weather and the atmosphere. They're qualified to weigh in on the subject. And that's why you get these unfortunate articles talking about all the weather experts that don't believe global warming is happening. And, and it threatens to discredit the fields unjustifiably. Now, the question, of course, uh, and I think uh, a couple of these of our uh, commenters did raise this, um, is well, what are we going to do about it? And <laughs> I didn't bring that up because I don't have any good answers. Maybe you do. Well, I'm not sure that I have good answers. But for instance, there is uh, something that I um, uh, found out a couple of years ago when I was doing research for uh, for Nonsense and Stills, um, the, the the book that came out last year. Uh, there is a chapter in there about celebrities, 
And so I did a little bit of research about, um, not just in the United States, but generally uh, across the Western culture, let's say, how this phenomenon is dealt with. And I found out that there is an, an interesting group in, in the United Kingdom who has come up with this, uh, at least novel idea. I'm not sure how effective it has been, but it is a novel idea. What they did was they, they, they set up a, um, a hotline for celebrities only. Uh, so if you are a celebrity and you want and you're, you're asked to go on television or radio or whatever and you want to talk about something because it's dear to you. So let's, t- let's take a positive case, uh, one of those that you, mentioned, you were mentioning earlier. Right, so a celebrity that wants to do some good in, on behalf of, say, climate change. Right? But they don't know anything about climate change. Uh, well, then this group set up this, this um, hotline. They can call, the celebrity can call the number. And uh, at the other side, there is a member of this essentially skeptic organization who will, will, in fact, put them in touch with one or more experts in that particular area. And the experts will give them, uh, the celebrities, the, the talking point, and, the, and will, they will answer uh, the celebrity's question so that the celebrity is, in fact, a little better equipped. Uh, about you know talking about what he or she wants to talk about. Now I doubt, unfortunately, that somebody like Jenny McCarty would actually, on, of her own accord, call a skeptic hotline uh, before going on television and talking about um, autism. But that is an interesting point because, at the very least, it makes um, it, it puts the burden in some sense on the other side. Because if if the the group in question started, of course, sending out uh, press releases to the press, and so in some sense you also put the the media, the press, on alert and saying, look, guys. A lot of these people are actually saying nonsense, are talking nonsense, and there are ways to check about this. And presumably, a, a more effective way to do this is to do something like the Center for Inquiry has been doing for years now, a media watch um, uh, right. uh, you know, setup, so that the media have themselves a uh, one or, or more reference points to go and check if they're actually doing a story. Now, of course, that assumes we're talking about serious media like you know National Public Radio, or The New York Times, and not you know Oprah, uh, Oprah's TV show. But nonetheless, I do agree with a point you were raising earlier that often the media themselves don't know where to turn um, when it comes to, uh, to expert opinion. So that's certainly one thing that can be done. Now, one of our, of our commenters, I believe, raised the point that, well, you know, you can teach critical thinking all you want, but if you know, people want to believe what they want to believe, they, they will do it for emotional reasons. Certainly that is the case in a lot of, of denialism and a lot of the, you know, the denial, denial of evolution. It's clearly mm-hmm. rooted in, in, in religious um, uh, emotion, uh, the denial of, of uh, um, the connection between vaccines and autism is, is, is rooted in personal people, people, personal experiences with their children as well as their general distrust with you know, big farm and that sort of stuff. Um, so critical thinking teaching by itself certainly isn't going to solve the problem, although I maintain that it would certainly be an improvement on what we have now. A, Perhaps more immediately efficacious way to do it is something that I've seen uh, uh, brought up recently precisely within the discussion about global warming, which is Mm -hmm. why don't we play by the same rules? Why don't we, on the skeptic side, also use celebrities, go out and seek celebrities to make them our, uh, you know, the carriers of our message instead of Mm -hmm. having the skeptic or the scientists who usually are inept at talking to the, to the press, they're usually not particularly good-looking, they're usually not particularly whatever, tall, whatever that causes the halo effect. Why don't we pick, on the other hand, approach celebrities and make them do, and ask them to do an emotional appeal? Now, the problem with that, of course, is a lot of scientists and skeptics shy away from that technique because they think that that is manipulation, manipulating the public. It's, you know, you're not convincing people for the right reasons, you're convincing them through psychological means. Well, my friends, let's wake up, because that's the way it works mm-hmm. in the short term. Uh, I think that there, there can be a two, two-pronged strategy, right? You can have a short-term effect by emotional appeal as long as it's justified by the fact that, that it's, it's based on solid understanding of the science. And then that, bring, that gains you time that, 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 so that you can actually um, 
uh, get people involved in long-term educational programs. I like it. It's a little bit like um, one of my old favorite plays, Cyrano de Bergerac, in which the, uh, yes. the brilliant writer and thinker who isn't all that pretty to look at writes the, the scripts, which are then read to the lovely lady by the, the handsome but, but ditzy man. Let's call it the Cyrano Project. Let's, let's ask our, uh, our uh, listeners and, and, and skeptics organizations to, to consider this seriously, uh, I really because like I think that idea. It, it might work, actually, yeah. to some extent. All right, uh, let's wrap up this part of the Rationally Speaking podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. Mine is actually a negative pick this week. I just read, well, actually, I read half of Jonah Lair's book. <laughs> you couldn't stand the whole thing? <laughs> I, yeah, I try to give a book a fair, a fair chance, but um, I put it down after about halfway through. Uh, sorry, the book is called Proust Was a Neuroscientist. And the idea of the book is that a bunch of modernist artists and writers actually discovered important facts about how our brains work well before scientists discovered those facts. So, for example, Lair points to Virginia Woolf's style of writing in which um, it's very fragmented. She writes the internal monologues of characters as being sort of these multiple loosely connected streams of consciousness. And he says that she, quote, knew that the self was too profound to be found. Um, Oh, that sounds very profound. The whole book is written like that, Massimo. Um, another example, he, he points to the philosophy, the personal philosophy of the novelist George Eliot, who wrote that she believed in free will and she believed that people's personalities aren't predetermined by their genetics. And Lair says that, quote, the sprawling realism of Eliot's novels ended up discovering our reality. We are imprisoned by no genetic or social physics. Really? So basically, I would say that we're imprisoned by both, actually. <laughs> basically, as far as I can tell, what he did is he started with the developments in psychology and neuroscience over recent decades, and, and then he just went through modernist art and literature, and he searched for artists whose, whose vision sort of loosely echoed something that turned out to be true about the brain. But that doesn't mean the artists discovered those facts. First, the parallels he's drawing are really fuzzy and hand-wavy. And second, they may have believed certain things, but it's not like they had any solid evidence for them. Lots of people believe lots of things, uh, but we don't typically say that they know those things unless they have some good evidence for believing them. Um, and what this reminded me of was, do you know that book, The Tao of Physics? Yes. Yeah. So this was this really popular book. It was in the 70s? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, it was a little while ago. And it argued, it was by a physicist, I believe, Capra. Um, and he argued that Eastern mysticism had actually discovered the truths of quantum physics long before scientists got to them. And he trots out all these examples of mystical texts talking about connections between human consciousness and reality, which, of course, is identical to the way the probability wave function collapses when it's observed by a conscious being. Anyway, the point is, if you're willing to take enough artistic license in your interpretation, you can prove that any artist, artist or mystic discovered some branch of science. Right. It, um, in fact, when you were mentioning the book earlier, I was thinking precisely the title of physics. Really? <laughs> yes. it's, you, should, you should read a little bit of, of, uh, of the new one. Jonah Lair's book mm-hmm. just to get a sample of it. Um, not to mention which, the book is really obnoxious in its tone towards science. The whole thing is, is dripping with this attitude of those arrogant, soulless scientists. They think they can explain everything, but they can't. 
So, for example, Lair says, Scientists say we're nothing but a loom of electric cells and synaptic spaces. What science forgets is that this isn't how we experience the world. This is why we need art. Ah. Science doesn't forget that we have subjective experiences. It's just not their job to portray those experiences the way art does. It's what we were calling earlier a category mistake. Uh, yes, actually, that's what I thought of when I was reading it. And he keeps talking about science as if it's opposed to art, the same way romantic poets like Keats and Shelley did. So even the language he uses, uh, for example, neuroscientists had ra has, have ransacked the brain, but they have not yet found its source ransacked like source. like they're destroying the mystery by searching for it I, this sort of thing really pisses me I off i can see why you got upset anyway i'll well, try my to calm pick, down no, that's okay <laughs> while you give your pick my, my, my pick is mostly positive um uh, i think it's a good book that that um, people who are interested in in certain things as i'll mention in a moment you should read uh, although it's not an unqualified uh, sort of endorsement the book is science fiction and philosophy from time travel to super intelligence edited by uh, susan schneider Now, it is one of these books that, it, that has become pretty popular over the last several years that use a pop, cult, pop, pop culture phenomena, science fiction, movies, uh, TV uh, series, and so on and so forth, to introduce the general public to uh, philosophical um, uh, issues. And I think that most of these books are actually um, fairly successful, some more than, than others. I contributed to a couple of them. I, I wrote a chapter for a book um, on the philosophy of The Daily Show, which was based on the Socratic method. And, uh, and then I contributed a chapter that still has to come out, actually it will come out sometime later uh, this year, hopefully, uh, to a book called The Philosophy of Sherlock Holmes, which is all about logical thinking. Oh, and, very you know, cool. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, so that should be fun. Now, this one is about science fiction. The reason I'm, I got interested in this is because I'm, I'm designing a new course at, at Lehman College on uh, philosophy and science fiction. And uh, uh, so I think, that, I think that this is a good, uh, a good way to start doing that, that sort of thing. So the, the way the book works is that it is divided in sections, each section with, with several uh, chapters, uh, of course. And the sections uh, deal with uh, major topics. So the first section, for instance, is about could I be in a matrix or a computer simulation? And so it's about virtual worlds. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one is, uh, uh, you know, do I have free will and what is the nature of persons? Uh, the third part is about mind, uh, both natural, artificial, and possibly hybrid minds. Uh, the fourth section is on ethical and political issues. And the fifth one is on space and time, particularly space, uh, time travel. And most of the essays are very good. Uh, some of them are um, more controversial than others. Um, some of them, of course, uh, I have my own opinions about why the other might be wrong. But all of them are thought-provoking. Um, they all refer to a set at the beginning of each section um the book lists a number of movies that are loosely connected to the uh, topics treated by the chapters so one can watch one or more of the movies and then have a discussion informed by the chapter so it's, it's a very uh, it's very fun uh, informative book i recommend it although again with a grain of salt because of course the individual essays are you know are sort of varying quality but otherwise the, the topic is very interesting and it's, it's very well done so again the book um is science fiction and philosophy from time travel to super intelligence Very cool. I hope that the uh, that at least one of the essays covers the question of whether Arnold Schwarzenegger was actually in the dream world in Total Recall the whole time or not. Because Total that's what Recall, I really want to know. Total Recall is listed as one of the movies. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're all out of time. So this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. 
This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.